All right, let's get started this morning. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. I want us to begin surveying some of the negative references to one another's. In other words, the things we're not supposed to do to one another. We're considering this series of how we relate to one another. Uh, And that pronoun, one another, which we might more modernly say, each other, shows up over and over again in the New Testament. And so we're looking through, we're going to consider most of the references. There might be a few that slip by that we won't give attention to, uh, but in the coming weeks, we're going to try to cover most of these instructions to govern our lives with each other. And we began with the umbrella principle, love one another. John 13, uh, verses 34 and 35 unfold the new commandment. Jesus is kind of summarizing all of the law, which reveals God's character. So we're, we're seeing how to be godly or righteous or holy, even as we live with each other. And he summarizes that in this language of loving one another. Um, and that's echoed. Elsewhere in Jesus' teaching, it's echoed, especially in John's writing. You go to 1 John and you'll find uh, most of the other love one another verses. Uh, So there's the umbrella principle that we love one another. On this command to love God and to love others, we can hang all of the law and the teaching of the prophets uh, because their intent was to steer us toward Christ-likeness, this heart of love. So this morning we begin considering these negative references. And so Matthew 24 uh, will give us uh, a starting place. We're just going to kind of start turning through the books of the Bible and see examples of these negative references uh, or references to negative behavior, perhaps better said. In Matthew 24, Jesus has come out of the temple and he's in a conversation with his disciples based on a question they asked. And he's unfolding to them what is soon to come in the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, And so when that persecution arises, he says in verse 9, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. There's our one another's. Usually we're thinking be kind to one another, uh, forgiving one another, all the nice things. And maybe we hear those a little uh, more receptively because we we hear it, we think, oh, I do that. Um, When we hear it in the negative, one another's about bad stuff, Maybe we tend to say, well, I wouldn't do that, Um, but our our task this morning is to hear these, to see what unfolds in the context, and then see if there's any way that I manifest that kind of self-love that tends to override the love that I'm supposed to show for others. Because this is the great struggle uh, day by day in our relationships, at home, the workplace, whatever it is. I have my way, and and it makes me happy. Uh, It's the way I like things. It's the way I think things should work or I should be treated. People should respond to me. Um, And when that doesn't happen or somebody else's interests are pit against mine, I now have to choose. And Philippians 2 kind of lays this out too, where we have to esteem someone else's need is greater than my own. Well, that's God's command on how to love one another. But the problem is I keep feeling my need is pretty important. And eventually I just say, I'm going to take that. And we snap at the kids because they've interfered with our uh, preference, our likes. Uh, So wrestle through these one another's, whether they're negative or positive, and rightly be asking the Spirit, show me where I'm not doing the one another's well. Here, the language is, many will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. When the heat was turned up on uh, the people of Israel, Jesus is saying, this is how it's going to unfold. 
Uh, and, and he says, this is for you. He's talking to this generation. And he wants them to know when that pressure comes, they're going to be tempted to default to taking care of self, looking out for number one. Um, and Jesus' disciples, though probably not the, the, the key audience for doing the betraying and falling away even from the faith, uh, they, in their own little sphere, were going to struggle. Uh, persecution was going to come in just a few chapters later, so perhaps a few weeks of time would pass in the story, and Jesus will be in the garden. Judas comes and betrays him. Jesus is arrested, and we always blame Peter as being the great betrayer, but the text is clear in Matthew that all the disciples forsook him and fled. So when the heat was turned up, they were all saying, mm, I'm not with him anymore. I got to take care of me. And they were out of there. And we have to just recognize that using the expression, throwing someone under the bus and making me look good or taking care of me is the natural tendency of the human heart apart from grace. In Genesis 3, when the first time there's any conflict or pressure or accountability, God comes in the cool of the day and asks, where are you? And immediately the finger pointing starts. It's their fault. It wasn't me. It was her. It wasn't, it's not her. It was him. And, and, and that's just the human heart now. Wrecked by sin, apart from grace, is to look out for self. So we might not think of each other as betrayers, as those who would hate one another in such a way as to let them suffer harm in order for me to get away. Um, but we have to make sure that we're at least evaluating ourselves to see if we are prone to preserving self, preserving my interests, my likes, more than taking care of someone else's. Betray one another and hate one another. Those are behaviors to be avoided as we relate to each other. Uh, let's go to the next gospel, Mark chapter 9. Jesus has gone up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, revealed part of his glory in the transfiguration. He's come down, displayed his power in a healing um, of, of a real challenging situation that he said only comes, the victory only comes through prayer and fasting. He predicts his death beginning in verse 30. Verse 32, they don't understand it. Verse 33, and they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. Parents, you know what this is like, perhaps, or most of us remember it when we were asked as kids, hey, what's going on up there? Silence, like nobody wants to answer. Nothing. Well, no, they, they just heard things toppling over and somebody letting out a shriek of pain. And it's like something was going on up there. But they kept silent because on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus heard them, and this is recorded in Matthew's account several times. Um, it happens here, and then apparently on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane after the Last Supper, having heard this great new commandment about loving one another, they're still arguing about who's greatest in the kingdom. Jesus overheard that and sits them down, and he gives them this simple principle, if anyone would be first... He must be last of all and servant of all. This is this radical teaching of Jesus on authority. What he's not saying is that roles have to be turned upside down. He's saying hearts have to be turned upside down. He's given roles. He's given positions of authority. We see them in the scripture. In our day and age, especially with such a such a debate raging, even in the church, about 
whether God really meant only men should be preachers and pastors, or should husbands really be the head of their home, or is that just inherently abusive? Um, We have to come to the scriptures and recognize when Jesus is speaking of Uh, things like mutual submission, as we see, submit to one another in Ephesians 5 in days to come. Um, Or or passages like this, whoever would be great, let him be servant of all. Uh, He's addressing the heart of every individual as they're plugged into their role. The heart and the character, the response of how we love one another, doesn't change because we get a different role. Jesus is speaking to those who are going to become the cornerstones and the foundation of the church, along with the prophets, Christ being the chief cornerstone, but they will be the foundation. They are clearly going to be leaders in the church. We see it in Acts 15. We see it in the letter writing. We see it in their witness. Uh, Clearly, they are leaders, but he's telling them the heart of a leader is to be a servant of all, and that doesn't even mean in every role or capacity the leader has to do the menial task. You know, just because you're the CEO or uh, the pastor or the husband or the colonel in the army, it doesn't mean you have to do the task of everyone under you and serve that. But you have to have a mindset that says, I'm here to serve them, to make them successful in what they do. That's the spirit here of of being a servant of all, being last of all. It's my needs go to the end of the line. My task is to make everyone else move a step forward, to be successful, to, to make them look good in God's estimation. So how do I help them overcome their selfishness and anger as a parent? I, I'm making them look good. I'm serving them. But being their servant doesn't mean I have to make their bed and pick up their dishes from the kitchen table. No, I can tell them to take their dishes over and make their bed. But I serve them by equipping them to be spiritually successful. Um, And so here, this lesson that Jesus is teaching is in response to the one another that we see. They argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now, I venture to say you probably can't think of a time where you sat around at the family table arguing with this language, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Now, maybe who is the greatest in other things? Uh, We just did it last week at my folks' house. My brother and I argued about who was the hardest worker in the family growing up. And with my reasoning skills, I clearly won that argument, hands down, So you can argue about who's the greatest in a lot of things, but we we don't typically just kind of pit ourselves as, I'm the most spiritual in this this family or in in this church or whatever. Um, But we might have that kind of raging inside our minds because we see somebody else and we see their parenting or we see their, you know, practices and we think, well, I'm the most spiritual. Uh, And we might fall into the same trap whether it's out loud or in our own minds, of arguing with one another about who is the greatest. Uh, And there are plenty other ways we can argue with one another, even if it's not about who's the greatest in the kingdom of God. Um, So just be careful. Uh, What does it really mean to argue? Um, You know, we might try to... It might be semantics in some way. You might say we had an argument, and it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, there was sin involved. Other people might say, we argued, and there probably was sin involved. So we kind of have to put Bible terms to this. Think of something like the Proverbs, a soft answer turns away wrath. Okay, so in order to love one another, when I hear, I shouldn't argue about who's the greatest, well, maybe I need to realize, am I always putting my idea out there as this is the way it has to be, and running over people? Uh, because I don't give at all. I'm an arguer. Um, When you look at qualifications of a spiritual man, especially one who would be in the position of leadership in the church, we see this scratched off. the. You can't be somebody who's argumentative. Well, that's different than somebody who's convictional, right? Somebody should be convictional if you're going to step into 
leadership of the church or if you're going to lead your family well, you're going to have to have conviction, but you can't be convictional and then say, well, well, that's why I'm argumentative. That's why I'm demanding. That's why it has to be my way. We have to wrestle with all the nuances of these one another's and realize I'm not supposed to argue. I'm not supposed to be belligerent or unapproachable, but rather convictional, uh, but with the capacity to be, to be challenged with questions about that conviction and justify from Scripture why it's so. So Mark chapter 9 gives us the arguing with one another. And should that begin to bubble this week, like the teapot starting to get a little warm, uh, come back to this text and remember, wait a minute, arguing with one another because we think we're the greatest or we know better is problematic. Uh, We need to rein that in with the fruit of the Spirit and temperance. Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 12. We come across another negative behavior. This one just in narrative. Luke 12, 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together, they were trampling one another. You've probably never trampled on anybody. Uh, Sadly, you hear this often. Um, in foreign countries. Uh, once in a while you'll hear of it. And, you know, I think there was a, uh, a shooting at a concert a few, well, probably within the last year. And in people trying to get away from uh, where the bullets were coming in, several people were trampled and perhaps even killed. Uh, but hundreds are killed every year. It, just in soccer matches alone, when... Something will happen in the stands and people are trying to exit these stadiums, typically overseas, and people will get trampled to death. Um, You hear of it in India several times in recent history, in in massive religious kind of events, and something will happen and a wave will start to move, and with thousands of people moving, the momentum drifts and people will get trampled as those massive crowds have nowhere to go but over people. Well, We hear in our account that thousands of people were gathered and, you know, the pushing and the shoving and now the trampling is taking place, Uh, literally walking on someone, pushing them out of the way. The question is, what were these thousands of people after? What were they pursuing? What did they want Uh, And the text doesn't tell us specifically. We kind of have to glean from the gospel uh, accounts to realize this often happened where thousands of people would flock to Jesus. The number one reason given in those accounts is because they were wanting to see his miracles. They wanted to be healed. Um, So the healing was first and then kind of secondary was this curiosity or You know, maybe he'd feed the multitude again. And so after one of those feedings, they all raced around the north end of the Sea of Galilee because they saw him get in a boat to sail straight across. And they're going to get there, and they're going to be a part of the crowd, and they're going to get something more from this great prophet, teacher, miracle worker. But more often than not, we read of them lined up and massive crowds, everybody who was sick from all the surrounding areas, bringing their sick and their lame to Jesus to be healed. They wanted something for themselves. And it didn't matter if the person in front of them was lame or blind or deaf. They were going to trample on them to get to him so they could get what they wanted. Well, we don't probably literally push and shove our spouses out of the way to get to the remote so I can watch what I want to watch. We, we know better. That's just too blatantly, you know, evil. Um, but we can manipulate and, you know, pout when we don't get our way. And we make sure and have, we have our ways of trampling that are a little more refined than literally physically, you know, running over people. Do we seek our own good at any cost? Not our own spiritual good, 
but our own pleasure, our own satisfaction, our own rest at any cost. Um, we trample on, on our children. If, because we had a long day, at, at any cost to them, we're going to make sure that we get our rest. You know, the old Ward Cleaver picture of coming home and reading the paper and, you know, everybody has to leave dad alone because he needs his time. And it's like, well, maybe there is time for that. Um, So that's not always wrong. But if it tramples on everyone else's good to make sure I have my peace and rest, then it's really no better than those who said, get out of my way because I'm going to get what I want. Um, Trampling on one another, disregarding others' needs because I think mine are more important. Um, We can't be tramplers. Um, in our house, we call it the consideration meter. Um, am I considering other people? You know, we go to a hotel or something, and I'm always like, you people are walking like elephants. Like, walk softer. There's, there's people below us on another floor. Like, don't jump off the bed. Don't do that. And the whole room shakes. It's that consideration meter. It's like, no, we don't want to trample on other people. Um, just have an antenna up for others instead of, you know, having a plow out in front to to get them out of your way. Uh, Luke 12, 1, trampling one another. Again, not one that sounds like we'd ever be guilty until we really get to defining trampling as disregarding others' needs because I'm trying to get my own needs met. Let's go to John chapter 5. This is a unique passage. This is one of these accounts you read and you have to kind of go back and get the whole thought so it's Hard to jump into the middle of it, but uh, Jesus is trying to explain how the Father works in him to witness to his credibility. Back in verse 31, he says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. He's on to say John, speaking of John the Baptist, was sent to bear witness to the truth. And he did that. Uh, he was that testimony, that light in the wilderness. Uh, he was sent by the Father. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now, this passage will fit into our morning study as as we're considering how the scriptures reveal Jesus. So Jesus here is saying, you go to the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. Basically saying, you're looking at the starkness of laws given and you're trying to check those boxes and say, I've done those, like the one Pharisee that came to Jesus. What do I have to do to be saved? And Jesus gives him a few of the commandments and he says, I've I've kept all them from my youth. I've always been that kind of righteous. And Jesus gets to the heart of the matter then and says, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Well, that's not a clear command in the Mosaic law, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. But Jesus was getting to the heart of that covetousness. Do you really love others? And the guy walked away saddened at what he had heard because he wasn't going to do that. Well, they came to the scriptures thinking they could find in them eternal life. I can find a righteousness that makes me look like a law keeper. But Jesus is saying, it is those very scriptures that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Paul would write of this. They, they They had a righteousness, but it was a righteousness that they defined by keeping this Mosaic law. They didn't realize their hearts needed righteousness. They needed a heart that truly loved others and loved God, not just kind of gave an outward appearance of that righteousness. They needed a righteousness that they could never attain to, uh, an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness, a righteousness not indigenous of themselves. It would have to be the righteousness of Christ received by faith. So, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, 
and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So here's a unique one another that apparently is bad because it works against receiving the glory that comes from the only God. And the danger that we're warned about is receiving glory from one another. Again, keep it in this context of Jesus telling them, you're searching the scriptures, trying to find your own righteousness, the merit of eternal life. But you're missing the higher standard, Jesus' perfect righteousness. And you don't seem to be able to seek the glory that comes from God because you're so busy seeking and receiving the glory that comes from men. You're finding comfort in the fact that you, you Pharisees are all together praising each other for your law-keeping. It's as if that one who came to Jesus and said, what do I have to do for life? And he says, keep these commandments. When he said, I've kept all those from my youth, all his buddies were probably like, oh, he sure has. He's, he's awesome. He's really good. We're all pretty good, aren't we? Sure. Oh, yeah, you're really good too. And so they've received all this praise of their own righteousness from each other, and that kind of filled up their tank. They're kind of satisfied. They don't feel like they need to seek any other glory. They receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Paul says almost the same thing. Um, that, that law that you said you, you've kept so well and you think it's declaring you righteous is the very law that will be used against you. You will be shown to be a lawbreaker. So beware of receiving glory from one another. Paul and Corinthians would warn us not to compare ourselves and measure ourselves with each other. We'll see that it's one of the one another's, but it's going to echo this one of receiving glory from one another. And it reminds us that as brothers and sisters in Christ, our greatest task isn't to, to sow encourage, which is kind of a, a good word. I'm using it with a little bit of a negative spin. Maybe it'd be better to say to sow prop each other up and always be trying to help each other feel so good that we, we never just speak truth in such a way, lovingly so, that, that convicts, that exhorts, that perhaps condemns and then steers to, you can do this better. We have to make sure that we're not always just praising and, and kind of shallowly confirming that we're all good, right? But instead, at times, we say, boy, that, your response there in that meeting sure seemed harsh. Like, is, is there a better way you could do that? Or, you know, the way you said something about your husband at the meeting, I just felt like it was it was degrading is there is there any other way you could raise that concern without and you and you challenge somebody to do better rather than always just praising and receiving praise glorying and receiving glory um, we're not to receive glory from one another if it distracts us from the glory of the father we're not supposed to bask in our righteousness, if there's more Christ-likeness to be worked in us, and we should have our eyes set on that. Uh, let us come to the scriptures again and again and, and be changed from glory to glory rather than being satisfied with what, you know, somebody says about, you did a great job there. Boy, you're really a kind-hearted person. Don't hear those things and think, oh, yeah, that's what I'm after. Because if you receive that glory and that's sufficient so that you don't seek a greater glory, We've, we failed. Roy, what do you think? I've seen, I just want to go on in the verse a little bit. Talk, it, it talks about a, a glory that comes to us from, and we are to seek that glory from God, a glory that comes from God to us. I've seen that idea in a couple other places, and it's, it's totally new to me. That's, 
I have no idea what it means, but it's intriguing. So kind of following the Swedish method, Roy's posing this question, essentially, what, what does that mean, a glory that comes from the only God? What glory do we receive from God? Um, and it'd be good to go back to our Peter study. It was there. Um, how, how, how do we have glory? Um, how is it tied to Christ? You, you're going to see glory associated with him. Uh, he's our hope of glory and things like that. So that, that's a great pursuit. Uh, what does it mean uh, to pursue or to receive, to seek a glory that comes from the only God? Um, our warning is to be careful that we don't hail each other as righteous or think that's what people are saying and we're satisfied. We, we sit back with a sigh of relief and think, yeah, I am pretty good. And the reality is uh, we've got a lot of work to do because the measure is not I'm the best among this crowd or I'm as good as I've ever been. Uh, the measure is the stature of the fullness of Christ. Uh, so beware of vainglory. Uh, answer Roy's, I guess, answer Roy's question or give some thought on it. It would be, I'd say first off, obviously accept Jesus uh, into your heart as, um, you know, your Lord and Savior and just step one, right? Step two, outreach. Spread the word, spread the gospel. Just spread this beautiful book in which is such a gift. I mean, I can't, I can't um, emphasize that more. And then just by living by the book, through Christ, in which the simple commandments in which God has kind of set base and laid out, even though Old Testament standard, fast forward, Jesus died for us, covered our sins, so we can have eternal life. The believers, um, I think those three steps would probably be a good starting point. <laughs> um, I think so. Uh, Because in our text, be reminded there that that glory is tied to the pursuit of righteousness, the law-keeping, I feel righteous, there's glory in that. And so um, to start by faith in Christ, recognizing his righteousness is credited to my account, then to live out that righteousness for all to see uh, is something of that glory there. Definitely worth exploring. Because people, I mean, do you notice that people that, I mean, they take heed. Um, they see the shine. You know, they, they, I don't know. It's, yeah. Yeah. All right, Acts chapter 15. This one probably comes to us in, in story form in such a way that's pretty easy to understand. Paul and Barnabas uh, are going to embark on a journey, verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Saul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So this division between Paul and Barnabas Uh, They disagree on the strategy, and sharp agreement produced separation from each other. Uh, So not one another, same pronoun, but they chose to translate it each other instead of one another. So they separated from each other, and that separation tied to sharp disagreement. Um, I think there's a lesson here in in communication, not, it, do, it doesn't mean like 
don't have a strong idea, uh, but the language of coming to the table in negotiation, uh, you hear that in politics, you know, we heard it even through, even if it's somewhat a facade, uh, Ukraine and Russia and other nations and, okay, let's, let's talk about this. And so some other country, maybe our Secretary of State or our President would go and, and try to negotiate some kind of talks at least. It's been going on perpetually with Israel and its you know, neighbors and such. There's something here about sharp disagreement and separating versus sharp disagreement. It's there. We don't see it the same. But instead of that being solved by separating, can it be solved by coming together more? We've been told this in our marriage, in sharp disagreement instead of Instead of like going your way, like, well, I don't know, that's, that's just, she's not going to think that, then that's her problem. Um, no, how about come even closer together? How about plow through the sharp disagreement to togetherness? Strive for that and see how the, the disagreement changes rather than doing it the other way around. The disagreement rules the day, and you kind of have to work around it somehow to get to t- togetherness. The problem here isn't that they had different partners and went different directions to tackle what seems to be the same plan, visit all the brothers in the churches that had been planted in all these cities. Uh, The problem seems to be that they separated because of disagreement rather than coming together and saying, okay, we might still not agree, but in togetherness, let's shape a plan. So be forewarned at least that sharp disagreement um, often is, is a wedge uh, that drives apart and you're going to have to work hard at realizing rather than just dealing with the fallout and coming up with plan B, okay, what do we do now that we're apart? Well, I'll take Silas and I'll take him and we'll go our own ways. That worked and God used that. So it's a lot of mercy and grace there, but I don't think our plan should be to let problems, disagreements divide, and then we come up with a second kind of plan and assume there's going to be mercy and it'll all work out. Um, I think we need to work hard at, at the unity and coming together and not letting that sharp disagreement um, be a wedge. So the question is, if we're going to apply this, you know, what, what causes these sharp disagreements? Um, and, and every one of our marriages, every one of our, you know, parenting situations, friendships, you know, all kinds of scenarios. And sometimes it goes back to the trampling one another and some of those things where we won't give up our way. Other times, you know, you're probably kind of valid in your position, but maybe the other person kind of is too. What are you going to do? Um, maybe one of you isn't blatantly wrong about being stricter with that child or being a little more relaxed in your approach to that child. Maybe you're not wrong in whether you should spend on this situation versus save. And yet these things can become sharp disagreements that can produce then a fallout, which leads to, we'll just make this work another way. But, But where's the unity? Where's the coming together? And I think in the providence of God and in giving us the scriptures, we do have that verse tucked away later where Paul says, you know, send John Mark. He's valuable to me. And God shows that, no, this can be worked out. When we have the heart of God in dealing with one another, even in ministry and in the throes of life, you really can get to the togetherness. It's just going to take some work. May not even happen immediately, as in that case, but uh, we need to be resting in with confidence God's word that unity is possible. Um, and we can trust Him with that. So beware of sharp disagreement that would cause separation from each other. Uh, Romans chapter 14. So far, each of the books are 
giving us one of these negative one another's. Romans 14. We're into the portion of the book of Romans, which there are all kinds of practical applications stemming from. You're justified. You are made righteous, declared righteous in Christ. And that's of God's mercy. And now based on that mercy, you should live as a living sacrifice. And this is what it's going to look like. And these last chapters have all kinds of applications, as most of the epistles do, on what it would look like to live out the theology that unfolded at the beginning of the letters. So if we're truly saved by grace through faith in Christ and we're made righteous by Christ and not by the law, everything Romans teaches us, then this is what it would look like. Live this way. Romans 14, verse 13, Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. A lot of instruction here on that what we might call Christian liberty, uh, and yet the simple one another is let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. We've just been told before that how one person esteems one day is better than another, verse 5. Um, Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother or why, or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. Conclusion, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. That being true, the word therefore means, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Don't cause them to falter in their pursuit for which they would give an account for, but you too will, because that's not loving one another. Uh, So don't pass judgment on one another, neither cause someone else to stumble. Uh, Neither one of those is good for you. But the specific one another is, do not pass judgment on one another any longer. Uh, They don't apply the truth of God's word and the principles of righteousness the same way you do. And so you pass judgment on their effort at pursuing godliness because it's not at the same pace or at the same bar uh, that you feel should be set. Uh, Be careful. Um, We do know that we will all give an account to ourselves to God. We know that. We do know there is a perfect standard of righteousness and holiness. Uh, We do know we should be progressing in our sanctification. We should be growing. We should be weeding out sin. We should be pulling down strongholds. So what is the alternative to passing judgment on one another? When we know that some are here in their Christian walk and some are still back here. I think honestly on the path of righteousness in which we should all be striving for, I always put up the statement there, who am I to judge? And I always, you know, when when I'm talking to whoever is there having whatever problem, I mean, we all are sinners. And it's all, it's, we're not perfect. And who am I to judge? Because that would just be, you know, that, that, would, that would make it worse. Um, so we're told not to pass judgment on one another. And Zachary's question that kind of hangs over us uh, is, who are we to judge one another? Kind of goes along with the question, so, so what do we do if we see someone and we think they aren't where they should be? What do we do with this not judging? Roy? He that is spiritual discerneth all things, so we are commanded to discern. I believe the admonition, I can't come up with me, is not to judge one another. So what's the difference between discernment and judgment? It seems like what you do with what you have figured out or seen is the difference. To judge is to say, 
eh, they aren't worth anything. To discern is to say, I've got this problem, but how do I come along and help? Yeah, we have to wrestle with what, what are we actually saying when we say judge? Because while the Bible might say, judge not, that you be not judged, it's not too far later in that gospel we hear, judge righteous judgments. Uh, by their fruit, you will know them. Um, so we, we have to think, wait, wait a minute, what, what are we doing when we judge? And I think Roy has, has helped us by understanding the discernment process should be ongoing. Hebrews is clear. This is a mark of mature believers that you can discern good and evil because you're in the word. And some of you aren't in the word enough, the writer says. And so you still need milk instead of meat. Practice your discernment, he says. So what do you do when you discern? I don't think they are living right. You can either be the scribe and the Pharisee when they see the man wounded in the story of the Good Samaritan and say, that's trouble, he's in a bad place, but I'm too good and keep going or, and go away from the problem or you can run to the problem and suddenly we don't call that judging someone. We may have used judgment, but our response is, I need to go and restore the brother that's fallen, Galatians 6.1. You are spiritual in that moment, walking in the spirit as we just saw in chapter 5. You who are right now spiritual, help the one who's overtaken in a fault. Go and help them. Well, that takes discernment to say, I don't think that's right, but you're not being judgmental. You're not violating this commandment of passing judgment. You're discerning and realizing they need help there. I'm going to run and help. And the response now is determined, do we have a heart of judging people or do we have a heart of discernment? Um, Because a lot of other commands of the one and others are going to sound like they flow out of discerning a problem, exhorting one another, encouraging one another. Daniel, some other thoughts to add? Uh, I think the principle that Quill uh, and Priscilla provided, uh, where Apollos was giving a truth, but not the full truth, and instead of kind of pushing him out, they brought him to table, they brought him in, and they, they spent time giving him the fullness. Um, you can also find in 1 Corinthians where in the passage talking about meat off of the idols, there's an idea that they're, they're bringing them in to make sure that they're they're growing up in the faith. So there is this um, discipleship first principle that I would uh, apply. Um, so a, a seeking to understand where that person, what that person understands first, so that you can help bridge the gap between perhaps errant doctrine to uh, right doctrine. Yeah, Aquila and Priscilla give us this great example. I'm glad you raised that one. Uh, Apollos was teaching, he's not all bad, but there's kind of new information that could really help him out. And instead of just going on about how off he is and and judging him for his lack of understanding, they go to him and and help and bolster and supply truth that's needed. Uh, And I think that's that's the difference. I, I don't think we need to be uh, paralyzed as if somebody played a, a, a trump card when they said, oh, you can't judge me. Well, I think you need to ask them pretty quickly, like, what, what, what do you mean by that? Because I'm not here to say I'm good and you're bad. I'm here to say let's help each other get it right. Um, that, that I think scares us. Like we don't want to be judgmental, but no, you need to be to obey the commands of Scripture in the sense of I need to judge and discern The question is, are you sitting back and just stewing about it or feeling self-righteous, or are you striving to make them more righteous? Are you doing what's best for them? Because now the spiritual is helping one overtaken in a fault. Or as we started, the strong or the greatest among you is becoming servant of all. You're going to go down there and help that one get to where they need to be. I think it's interesting, too, when you look at, you know, the command where you go and go with another person and address somebody, you know, if, if they're uh, sinning or even if you look at directions to the elders or when Paul talks about casting people out of the church, right? 
It all starts with trying to help people, right, after you've discerned what's going on. But there could be the time where they are cast out from the body of believers. And I think then it's even harder to not be judgmental uh, because they re refuse to change their ways and, uh, and do what the Bible says. And so I think that, that's a, that really is challenging, right? To say, how do you deal with that and not become, not, not judge others? Or is there a place at some point, I mean, God will judge them ultimately, but is there a place at some point where they absolutely refuse, and so, you know, what point does this apply to the body of believers, or not, when it's not believers, right? So right. it's not our place to, to sit in the judgment seat, but there is a place where there's accountability, and to do that without... Trying to sit in the judgment seat, I think, is a, is a very hard challenge for a lot of people. Right. Right? But that language of judgment seat is helpful because that's, that's what uh, Paul cited there. Knowing, as the scriptures say, we all stand before God. Knowing that we'll face that judge, I need to make sure in my discerning, I'm helping others be ready for that moment. Whether it's an unbeliever or a believer, I'm speaking enough truth that I did what I could to help them be ready to face that judge. Um, now, it's a fine line. Uh, you know, at, at some point, you don't want to be judgmental when someone does something different, right? They, they race out of church one Sunday because they're going to go to a Chiefs game. Well, do you need to judge them because they didn't stay in fellowship or something? Uh, well, I, you should probably tread lightly there and think, okay, what should be my response here? But eventually, when you see you know, man, this guy, he, he's spending all the family's money they don't have, you know, get to every Chiefs game and do all the stuff, and he, you know, he's screaming and yelling at his kids because they're loud during the game, and, and you realize, wait a minute, this, this is becoming an idol, all right? While we're all happy to say, hey, enjoy the sports if you like them, that's fine, it has its place, eventually you'd have to say, okay, I'm not passing judgment on someone who does something that maybe I wouldn't do or to what extent. But then at some point, I also have to think, I, I need to use discernment and help this brother with something I see as wrong. So it's the same issue, but at some point, it, it might be, don't pass judgment. And another point, it might be, no, discern and exhort. Um, and this is why we need the Holy Spirit. And as we get into these one another's, there's a lot of these things where we're going to feel inadequate or what's my place or who am I? And the answer is, you're a spirit-filled believer uh, who has every right and even obligation to live out all these one another's. Today, we've heard some of the negative ones, so we'll be thinking this week, I know some things to avoid. I know a few minds to not step on, um, and then we'll keep adding and realize uh, there, there's a whole beautiful garden of one another's that reminds us there are a lot of ways to, to bless and help one another. So Heavenly Father, uh, by your Spirit, guide us down a path of truly loving each other this week. Give us hearts for this kind of love, uh, recognizing that this is the way that we've been loved as you demonstrated your love for us through Christ who uh, took upon him the lowly form of a servant to do what was necessary for us to stand before you in righteousness. Uh, give us that spirit of uh, stooping uh, to love others in any way that you would show us this week. We pray for help in this as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.